From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today we speak with veteran actor F. Murray Abraham. He recently earned a Golden Globe nomination for his role in the hit HBO series The White Lotus, which he says is the best job he's ever had. It was just heaven. When that show closed after four months in Sicily, I asked him if we could shoot the whole thing all over again. He won an Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in the film Amadeus. Also, we'll talk to Jeff Gwynn, author of the new book Waco. The deadly assault on the Branch Davidian religious sect near Waco, Texas, took place 30 years ago this spring. Gwynn's account of the confrontation draws on new interviews with federal agents and surviving Branch Davidians. And David Biancooley will review Ryan Johnson's new TV series Poker Face, starring Natasha Lyonne. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Our first guest is veteran actor F. Murray Abraham, best known recently for his role in the second season of the hit HBO series The White Lotus, a performance that earned him a Golden Globe nomination. Abraham won the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1985 for his role in the film Amadeus, where he played an 18th century court composer in Vienna who resents the success of a young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Among his many roles in TV, film, and theater, Abraham is known for playing a recurring character in the Showtime series Homeland and a prominent role in the Wes Anderson film The Grand Budapest Hotel. Now in his 80s, F. Murray Abraham is still busy. Besides his critically acclaimed role in The White Lotus, he recently played a writer for a team producing a hit video game in the Apple TV Plus comedy series Mythic Quest, and he earned an Emmy nomination doing the voice of an ancient Egyptian god in the Disney Plus series Moon Knight, drawn from Marvel Comics. F. Murray Abraham, welcome to Fresh Air. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to, to hear those, those things about myself. It really is. You know, I love a compliment, and I take all of that you, you said as a compliment. Well, and the, the idea that Marvel Comics is using my voice, I have to tell you, that was a great big thrill. I get, uh, believe it or not, I, I get um, fan mail from China wow. for that thing. Uh, let's let's start by talking about white, the White Lotus. Um, and I thought we'd just play a scene here. Th- this takes place at a fabulous hotel on the coast of Sicily where uh, a number of American guests are staying. And one of them is a party of three men from a family, a grandfather, that's you, a father, played by Michael Imperioli, and your grandson, um, Albie, who is played by Adam DeMarco. And uh, you're all there uh, in Sicily to trace your ancestral Sicilian roots. And this is a scene where you're at lunch or dinner after you've just arrived, and we hear you speaking mostly with your son, uh, Michael Imperioli, who's in his 50s. Uh, You speak first, um, and you're flirting with the waitress. You just flew all the way in from Los Angeles. (laughs) Just to be here in Sicily, because we are Sicilian. You, Cecilia? Yes, from Catania. Ah, you married? Dad, why don't you let her put our order in so I can get a drink? My son is a big muckety-muck in Hollywood, so he's very impatient. I'll bring you your drinks. Thanks. Sorry. Thank you. Dad, you got to knock it off. Oh, what's the problem? What are you doing? I mean, what's the point? Flirting is one of the pleasures of life. Do you actually think you have a chance with any of these women? Oh, don't be rude. I'm just saying, you're 80 years old. Oh, I'm still a man. 
and I get older and older, but the women I desire remain young. Natural, right? You can relate to that. And that's our guest, F. Murray Abraham in The White Lotus. Yeah, that last line is a reference to his son's sex addiction, uh, which he has not left at home. He's he's hired a sex worker uh, for his visit to Italy. Um, You want to describe this character, Bert, Bert DeGrasso? I will try to describe him, but it's hard because he is so much like so many people in my life. Uh, I'm first-generation American. Uh, My father's from Syria, and my mother was from Italy. I grew up with people like Bird, and uh, their attitude toward women is uh, was very real. And my mother, uh, an Italian woman, uh, treated them like they were the king, and and the the sons were the princes. Uh, so that uh, his offhand references to women, um, in an in an odd way, I, I'm still puzzled by it. Uh, so many women like my character even though he's really he's he's nothing but a but a male chauvinist pig is all he as we used to call them in the old days i personally am a feminist but uh the way he treats women uh as people to be pursued and and won and enjoyed and it's a pleasure but I think the women who respond to this character understand that he really has a good heart, that he really is a, 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 a decent man just from another time, that's all, and they accept him. And I'm hoping what that indicates is an understanding between generations and a possible communication between generations, which is very difficult these days. There's not much in the way of discussion between, well, political parties, between sexes, and I I. I hope that's an indication that the so-called pendulum is swinging the other way back toward rationale. Yeah, well, there's plenty of discussion in The White Lotus among generations about those very issues. Um, you know, Mike White, who wrote and, and you know, ran the series, do you know why he picked you for this role? Did he talk about it? All I can say is I thank my lucky stars for it because uh, that was the best job I think I've ever had in my life. Wow. And I've been acting for a long time. It was just heaven. When that show closed after four months in Sicily, I, I asked him if we could shoot the whole thing all over again. It was really great. It wasn't just the script or his direction. He's, he's a delight to work for. But it was everybody I was working with. And I'm talking about the crew, the cast. I'm carrying on about this because it's a very rare experience. Yeah, and you were all together at this beautiful place Living, working together, kind of a summer camp with that with people that you were happy to share time with. <laughs> a very expensive summer camp, yes. but but the the place was closed up. Uh, we were the only uh, residents, and everyone lived in the hotel. Uh, crew, cast, we were all together. So sometimes we were able to show up uh, for makeup in our pajamas. It was uh, it was it was idyllic. Um, what that contributed, I think. And to the to the making of the film is a, a real joy and a life that comes through the camera, even though there are some real dark things that are dealt with. I think what you get a, a sense of is family. Yeah. You know, if you were there with this cast in this beautiful setting for this four-month shoot, and I read that you and Michael Imperioli would, would just do some re- rehearsals on the side of your own. Did, did you improvise stuff? 
Yes, we improvised. Uh, it was encouraged by Mike to improvise, but the lines themselves were, were so good, it didn't take too much, really. But uh, uh, we both are serious actors, and uh, when I suggested that we rehearse, he said, absolutely, and we added uh, Adam DeMarco. We invited him. Your, your your grandson in it, right? Yeah, our grandson. Yes, Adam. Yes, he's one, and he said, "Sure, he'd be glad to." That's that's not very common, by the way, either. And we rehearsed the scenes ourselves in, independently, and um, uh, it paid off. And aside from that, the three of us became quite close because of that. And I think that comes through. Well, you know, one of the th- things that struck me is that while your character is you know, imbued with some pretty outdated ideas about men and women, there's a lightness to him. I mean, a lot of the characters that you're known for are really intense. This guy has a light touch, and that it, it, I wonder if that's what Mike White wanted from you. Well, it's an interesting thing that you pointed out, because in fact, um, he must have seen what I thought was an essential charming quality about uh, Salieri in Amadeus, which is he had a wonderful sense of humor. It was wicked, but it was it was funny. And people don't think of Salieri as funny, at least the older Salieri. The younger one was far too serious. But I think he saw that. And there's a sense of, of life and lightness in, in so much of my work. And he must have caught that. Um, the stuff you're talking about is, uh, you know, the Homeland thing. Now, that's interesting. Uh, Homeland is this Showtime espionage thriller, which stars Claire Danes as a CIA agent who has bipolar disorder. And your character was Dar Adal, who's a black ops specialist in the CIA. Um, that character is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I always thought of him uh, as not only bisexual. I thought he was up for anything. And I mentioned to uh, the wardrobe people that I thought he wore women's underwear. <laughs> and what <laughs> and what the costume the wardrobe people did was was to sew lace on my panties. <laughs> no, seriously? Really, really. Uh, there are certain things I am wearing those lace underwear. I'm not going to tell you which scenes they are, but I can I can I can give you a hint. They're the most uh, violent scenes. So, so that that added to your performance to have that bit of lace. Oh yeah, those those little secrets that actors actors have. They it's okay to talk about it now because I'm not doing it anymore. If I was still doing it, I would never have told you this. But those secrets uh, add something to each character that I do that are no one's business, and it uh, I think it it adds to the mystery of the character, no matter what I do. F. Murray Abraham earned a Golden Globe nomination for his performance in the hit HBO series The White Lotus, and he recently appeared in the Apple TV Plus series Mythic Quest and the Disney Plus series Moon Knight. He'll be back to talk more after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. We're speaking with actor F. Murray Abraham, who recently earned a Golden Globe nomination for his performance in the hit HBO series The White Lotus. He won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in the film Amadeus and is remembered for his roles in the Showtime series Homeland and the Wes Anderson film The Grand Budapest Hotel. He recently appeared in the Apple TV Plus series Mythic Quest and the Disney Plus series Moon Knight. You have an interesting background. I mean, you mentioned that your father was Syrian, uh, an immigrant. Um, Your mom was 
Italian. You were born in Pittsburgh, but grew up in El Paso, Texas. Tell, tell us, tell us a bit about you know, your childhood. What, what kind of kid were you? I grew up about four blocks from the Rio Grande, and uh, I grew up with all Mexican friends, and uh, I speak Spanish fluently. And um, Juarez, Mexico, in those days was not dangerous, not like it is now. And it, we had really free passage back and forth. It cost a penny to get across the bridge, but they never really collected. If you didn't have the penny, you didn't pay. Or we would walk across the, the, the Rio. No problem at all. It's too bad that there is a wall down there in El Paso, because growing up with two cultures is such a, a benefit. And uh, I grew up with that benefit. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Juarez. A lot of my playmates had homes in, in Juarez. And uh, we um, we would eat each, in each other's homes. And as I say, I grew up speaking Spanish. Um, the uh, accent that I have in Scarface, for example, that's pretty much what I sounded like when I was growing up. Not a Texas accent, uh, uh, <laughs> a Spanish no, it's accent. It's a, yeah. a Mex-Tex, but, but what's, yeah. As a teenager, I understand eh, you got into some trouble or could have, could have. Yeah. The problem with living on the border was that, uh, and it's still probably true, that the Mexicans were treated as as a second-class citizens, and consequently, a lot of poverty promoted gangs. And it was the beginnings of the Crips and the Bloods, I think, along that border and along uh, the border in uh, San Diego as well. But we had gangs like, uh, they were called the Lords and I was in a, a small gang, too. But we were never as violent as they are now. I mean, we didn't have the firepower, for one thing. Nobody was ever killed in any fights we were in. Uh, but I, I did get into trouble. We stole cars, and we did a lot of damage, but we we never cut anybody up. Uh, but uh, finally, I was going nowhere, and uh, I was ready to just get out of high school as soon as I could and leave. You stole car. I mean, you know, back then cars were different. It's funny. I actually I grew up in South Texas. I mean, which is a long way from El Paso, but I and I, I learned when I was a kid how you could start a starter mower by taking a screwdriver and connecting the two terminals <laughs> on the starter engine. I mean, it was not that hard. Did you boost a lot of cars? And what did you do with them when you got them? Well, we just we we would boost the cars and we would uh, just drive around. That's all. Have a good time and maybe even damage them. By the way trashed them. But uh, in those days, people left keys in cars. Uh, that was very common. And it was so common, and they were being stolen so often, that there was a law that was passed that if, if your car was stolen because you left the keys in, you were responsible for it. Uh, but uh, we, as I said, we didn't have any accidents, fortunately. But we did do rotten things to other people's property. And I spent a little time in jail a couple of times. But uh, briefly, and, you know, my parents would get me out. I, I was going nowhere is what it what amounts to. You were skipping school, I assume, doing that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, uh, it was not very smart. But uh, anyway, I didn't want to become a mechanic like my father was, as good as a mechanic as he was. I just wanted to get out and get on my own. And, and so you got into acting through a teacher, right? Yeah, what I wanted to do was to graduate from high school as soon as possible, and I took an easy course, I thought, called Speech and Drama. And sure enough, Lucia P. Hutchins, my teacher, said, uh, you you should try this. And she introduced me to Shakespeare. And uh, I did a play 
and I won a contest in the state of Texas. I won a scholarship to go to college at uh, Texas Western in El Paso. The scholarship was a hundred bucks. Can you believe that? <laughs> and anyway, I, I got through with that first year in, in uh, college, and then thumbed my way to L.A. Uh, yeah, uh, on the Road was a very important book to us in those days. Jack Kerouac. And thumb, yeah, yeah. Jack Kerouac. And thumbing in those days, as you remember, coming from South Texas. I was did a lot of that do. myself, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I went to L.A., and uh, that's where I met my wife. when We stayed together for, oh, well, that's another story. So, so you you went to L.A. and well, you know there's there's was a lot of movie production in L.A. opportunities there. Why did you decide you needed to go to New York? I'll tell you, the uh, movie business was really tough on me. I had a real problem meeting people. The first time that I went on an interview, I just was I was a disaster. And I got so scared of the next one that I didn't go out again. I would do plays and readings, and I did some classwork, but I was too scared to audition. It's an awful thing to admit, but it's true. And when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to do this play, I'm going to get this play, and I got it. Bradbury's Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. I did Ray Bradbury's play in L.A., and it was a success. We ran for about eight or nine months, and I decided that I didn't like the way actors thought of themselves in L.A. I thought I was better than that. I mean, not better than them, but my ideas were of, of classical theater. And I decided that I wasn't getting the kind of instruction I wanted, and I wanted to find a great teacher. So my wife and I pulled up stakes and went to New York, and I auditioned for Uta Hagen, and she, she took me, and she was my only teacher. Wow. Well, now, 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 let's just pause there for a second. Uta Hagen, I mean, she was legendary for her, her method of instru instructing actors. What was the experience like for you? Uh, <laughs> well, it's great to be liked by someone like Uta Hagen. And I was a favorite. And I became a monitor in her class. And after about a year, I fell under the spell of a great teacher. And every student should keep this in mind. The more charismatic your teacher is, the more you will give up your own talent in order to please that teacher. And that's the route I was taking. And at one point, after having studied with her for over a year, I was really lost. And at one point during an exercise, she stopped me and she said, this actor has a great talent and he pisses all over it. And that was the last class I ever had with her. She realized that I was losing it, and she wanted to force me out of the class, and I did. And as soon as I left her, I started finding my feet again. It's an interesting lesson for everyone to learn. Wow. So, so you're, you're, you were kind of ignoring your natural instincts and trying some technique that she, you thought she wanted? or that's, that's exactly the right description. I was shutting off my own instincts in order to do exactly what she was saying. Uh, that that's a dangerous path to follow. We did a lot of acting in New York. We were kind of back in the 70s and 80s. And then in 1984, you were cast in the lead role for the film Amadeus. This was, this was one of these things that everybody knew was going to be a big deal because the play by Peter Schaffer had been such a huge success on Broadway. And I read that the director of the film, Milos Forman, spent a long time and talked to a lot of actors. Um, 
Do you want to just tell us what your experience was like that and how you got the part? Oh, sure. I'd be glad to. You know, that uh, play by Peter was a worldwide success. It was translated into over 30 languages. So everybody in the world wanted that part. Everyone who played Salieri in all the countries where it was done always won the top honors, which indicates that maybe it had to do with the writing as much as anything else. But uh, consequently, everyone wanted that part. And some very famous actors showed up in makeup with their own costume people. That's how much they wanted it. So the idea that this unknown actor was going to get the role was out of the question. The only reason that I ever auditioned for him was to meet him. And uh, I I knew I didn't have a chance, you know. And it was a a British writer, and it was written for a British actor. The point is, Milos did see something in me, invited me to his apartment to do a little rehearsal. We then did a videotape of it. And uh, at the end of the videotape, he said, All right, now... Do the old man. And I said, well, you know, so give me a chance to look at it. I didn't even examine it. He said, no, no, just do it. So I did it, and I improvised, and I looked at the script. And when I got through, I looked up to see what his reaction was, and he was gone. <laughs> he wasn't even there. He just he left the studio before I even had a chance to say anything to him. So I figured, you know, he hated it, you know. And uh, two days later, he called and said I was his first choice. But that was only one step. Then I had to meet the producer and then meet the writer. I still didn't knew I didn't have it. I, I just, it was too much to ask, uh, really. It was, a, it was a dream. And then besides that, I was in, in a conversation with Brian De Palma at the same time about Scarface. And he wanted me to do Scarface. And I kept saying, well, Brian, can you wait on this? Because <laughs> I got this other thing happening. He says, what other thing? And I said, it's Amadeus. He says, oh, well, then I'll wait. I'll wait for a while, as long as I can. So we waited and waited and waited. And the point is that I did take Scarface. And I went to L.A. to uh, rehearse it with the whole company. And we were rehearsing Scarface. And that's when I got the call that they, they wanted me to do Amadeus. Now, I heard that Al Al Pacino, who, of course, started in Scarface and who you were working with or are going to be working with, was also competing for the part of Salieri in Amadeus. True? Yeah. That's – yeah, Al wanted it like everybody else wanted it. And when he found out that I was going to do it, he came over to me and said, uh, uh, don't try to carry the whole film on your shoulders. Just do your work. I thought that was very generous of him. And um, uh, it was funny to be able to fly back and forth from Hollywood to Prague doing Scarface and then doing Salieri and then doing <laughs> – it was it was very, very romantic. Amadeus is filmed in Prague and then in L.A. Scarface is happening and you're doing both at the same time. Um, well, F. Murray Abraham, it's it's been fun. Thank you so much for, for spending this time with us. Thanks a lot. F. Murray Abraham earned a Golden Globe nomination for his performance in the hit HBO series The White Lotus, and he won the Best Actor Oscar for his role in the film Amadeus. He recently appeared in the Apple TV Plus series Mythic Quest and the Disney Plus series Moon Knight. Ryan Johnson, the writer-director who went from the blockbuster The Last Jedi to the Agatha Christie-style mystery comedies Knives Out and Glass Onion, has created his first TV series. Called Poker Face, 
It stars Natasha Lyonne from Russian Doll and Orange is the New Black. The first four episodes are now streaming on Peacock, and our TV critic David Biancooley loves it. Here's his review. If you've seen the Knives Out movies, and if you haven't, you should, you have a good idea what to expect from Poker Face, the first TV series from Knives Out writer-director Ryan Johnson. He concocts solid, intricate mysteries, populates them with oddball, entertaining characters, and casts his comedy mysteries with wonderful, often surprising choices. But you have an even better idea what to expect from Poker Face if you're a fan of classic TV, especially the iconic 1970s Peter Falk series, Columbo. In Columbo, Peter Falk played a rumpled, mumbling detective who invariably went up against society's one percenters, the wealthy, the privileged, the powerful. And by noticing the tiniest details and asking the most seemingly insignificant questions, he irritated his murder suspects until he eventually, brilliantly, solved the case. And Columbo wasn't a whodunit. The first act of each episode showed the killer committing the crime. Peter Fox Columbo didn't even show up until about ten minutes in, and the fun was in watching him investigate and exasperate, eventually uncovering what we viewers already knew. It's one thing to admire what Columbo the TV series did. It's quite another to pull off a modern version of it, but that's exactly what Poker Face does. Johnson does it in part by making some significant, very smart changes. The murderers and the murdered aren't just the elite. Sometimes, in Poker Face, they're gas station attendants or barbecue pitmasters. And the central character, Charlie Kale, isn't a man and isn't a detective. She's a cocktail waitress in Las Vegas who has an odd psychic power. She's sort of a human lie detector and can sense when people aren't telling the truth. In the opening episode, her casino boss, played by Adrian Brody, hears of her abilities and runs a test. He calls her to his office, picks up a deck of cards, and flips through them, telling her which cards he's supposedly holding. Sometimes he's lying, sometimes he's not. But she nails it every time. You're not reading the cards. How can I read the cards? You're reading me. It's not like it's one thing, like my eye twitches or something. Nah. It's just a general, yeah. you can just tell. Just that something is off. That's the best way to describe it. I could just tell. When anyone is lying, 100% of the time, I'm going to touch my nose. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. I'm not a soothsayer. I can't predict the future. There's nothing mystical about it. Just if someone is intentionally lying, that's it. You're not firing me. Charlie. Charlie. Ugh. How can you not see that this is a, it's a gift? You've been graced with a gift. The casino operator has a scheme to use Charlie and her gift, but things go sideways and Charlie ends up leaving the city with a casino enforcer, played by Benjamin Bratt, hot on her trail. And from then on, Poker Face turns into a modern-day version of several classic TV series. It's part The Fugitive, part Route 66, and lots and lots of Columbo. Peacock, very smartly, is launching this streaming series by showing the first four episodes on opening day. From the second episode on, Charlie visits different cities, including a stop along Route 66, 
and somehow gets involved in a murder at each place. Sometimes she's met the future victim, sometimes the killer, sometimes a witness. But she senses something is off and sets out to seek justice, even though she's on the run herself and has to avoid publicity. Natasha Lyonne is a total delight as the central character. Just as with Peter Falk, she has such quirky energy and charm, she shifts things to a higher gear just by showing up on screen. And also, as in Columbo, the guest stars more than pull their own weight. Adrian Brody in the opener is terrific playing a smarmy villain. And in later episodes, Judith Light steals the show as a former political radical, and Ellen Barkin and Tim Meadows chew the scenery in a good way as has-been TV actors reuniting for a dinner theater production. Everyone who guest stars shows up to play, often against type. In one episode, Leon's Charlie suspects a has-been punk rock star, played by Chloe Sevigny, of foul play in the death of Gavin, a new band member. Charlie tries to use her lie detector powers to ask about the murder victim, but at first, those get her only so far. Look me in the eyes and tell me that Gavin didn't write that song. Gavin wrote that song. Oh. Well, that's true. But also not cool. He deserves credit. And what do we deserve? That song isn't going to bring Gavin back, but it'll change our lives. We've recorded the song. We're playing it tonight. Look, Charlie, I'm just trying to make something good out of something bad. I've seen the first six episodes of Poker Face. Everyone is so clever, the twists so inspired, and the performances so good, I was satisfied by them all. And though Charlie is on the run throughout, most of Poker Face plays as a series of self-contained stories, just as Columbo did. Natasha Lyonne, like Peter Falk, may not show up until partway through each episode, but like her new series, she's unquestionably worth the wait. It's a great performance, and from the start, a great show. David Cooley is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed Poker Face. Coming up, writer Jeff Gwynn talks about his new book, Waco. It's about the confrontation between federal law enforcement and the Branch Davidian religious sect near Waco, Texas. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This spring will mark the 30th anniversary of the deadly confrontation between federal law enforcement and the Branch Davidian religious sect near Waco, Texas. The two assaults on their compound resulted in the deaths of 82 Branch Davidians, including 23 children and four federal agents. The Waco tragedy has been a rallying cry ever since for militant anti-government activists, though surviving Branch Davidians have rejected that association, saying their motivations bore nothing in common with right-wing militia groups. Our guest today, writer Jeff Gwynn, has written a detailed account of the Branch Davidian confrontation and its legacy, drawing in part on interviews with federal agents who were barred from talking to reporters for years after the incident and have some harsh criticisms of the operation. Gwen also brings fascinating insights into the theology and distinctive appeal of Branch Davidian leader David Koresh, who died in the assault and fire that consumed the compound. Jeff Gwynn is a former journalist and the author of several previous books, whose subjects include Charles Manson and People's Temple leader Jim Jones. His new book is Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Jeff Gwynn, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with the Branch Davidian theology, which 
the FBI never quite really got, I guess, and probably led to some mistakes. You know, David Koresh, the guy at the heart of this, did not found the Branch Davidians, we learn in your book. They were actually an earlier offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists. Can you briefly explain a bit about this and what the distinctive theology of the Branch Davidians was? The Seventh-day Adventists always believed that there were prophets who came down to earth, there were in human bodies on earth, might be a better way to say it, and that the end of times would soon come, and when it did, only those who believed correctly would be saved and be, enter the ultimate kingdom of God on earth. But in the 1920s, some of the Seventh-day Branch Davidians in Los Angeles decided that their fellow Adventists weren't being faithful enough to the Bible, needed to be stricter. Ultimately, they broke away and founded a new compound in Waco, Texas. They called themselves the Davidians, and they called themselves the Rod, coming from a biblical verse about the Rod will lead you to the proper place. They were very strict. They believed that only they really understood what God wanted, and ultimately, after a couple changes of prophets and each of their leaders was always believed to be a prophet who was bringing new information from God, they ended up being led by David Koresh, the former Vernon Way Howe. And what Koresh preached was different from anyone else. The other leaders of the Branch Davidians said that they were given the role to lead their followers and help the rest of the world understand how to change so that the end times could come. David Koresh preached that he and his followers would bring about a conflict and would make the end of days happen in their lifetimes. And it's interesting because he was the son of a teenage mom and, and had learning difficulties in school. But when he gets involved with the Davidians and begins building a movement, he is good at it. He recruits followers from California and Australia. And what's interesting about this as I read it is that it's not – he wasn't the kind of evangelist who just has a way with words and kind of spin flowery rhetoric. People were impressed with the depth and substance of his command of the Bible. Tell us a little about that. One of the shocking things about Vernon Wayne Howe, who becomes David Koresh, is that when he arrives at Mount Carmel, he is a stuttering, stammering 21-year-old who is barely coherent. The Branch Davidians living there, even though they let him stay, think of him as a lost cause. And yet suddenly he seems to become almost a sponge absorbing scripture, and not just absorbing it. But there comes out of him this new confident voice, very clear, mesmerizing might be a, a better term. And the only thing they could think, of course, was that was some miracle he'd been touched by God. So when he would preach, he would raise issues in the Bible, he would make connections that some of America's greatest religious scholars today say were amazing, that he could put these things together, a line from one passage in an early New Testament verse, and show all its parallels to a line in the book of Revelation. 
as a preacher, as an interpreter of the gospel, he could convince almost anyone that he understood things no other human understood. It was a great gift. He was kind of a biblical savant. He was enormously persuasive. And his following grew, and he came to lead the group at Mount Carmel, the the headquarters of the Branch Davidians outside of Waco. Um, He had a wife, Rachel, but as time went on, as he was the leader of the followers among the Davidians there, he kind of dictated some new rules for intimate relationships. You want to explain this? What David Koresh would do for his followers at Mount Carmel is occasionally announce that God had sent him a new light, a new message. The initial messages basically were ways everyone could work better, love the Lord more, and basically make yourself worthy of being saved when the end times came. But gradually, some of these new lights benefited David Koresh and no one else. This is not unique among religious demagogues who claim a special relationship with God. The first thing he claimed, even though he already had a wife, a 14-year-old girl, pushing legal limits in Texas, but she had her parents' permission, so the marriage was legal. But he announced that God now wanted him to have wives, multiple wives. He pointed out some scriptural passages that he said back this up, And he claimed that he needed multiple wives because it was his job to sire 24 children who would become elders and help rule after the kingdom of God's reestablished at the end times. Then he further announces that among all the women at Mount Carmel, every woman of childbearing age, and that would be, say, from 12 up, were now his wives and could have sex only with him for procreation purposes. The husbands of these women were forbidden to have sex at all anymore. And Koresh said this was a blessing to them because now they could focus their energies on studying the Bible more and becoming more worthy of the Lord. So it was sex, it was everyone else's wives, and he even decided God wanted him to have the only unit air conditioning in Mount Carmel. Again, he said these were the privileges of the Lamb. The federal agency that would try to arrest David Koresh was the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, and they were investigating violations of gun laws. Explain how the Branch Davidians got into guns. The Branch Davidians wanted to use guns to raise money initially. They would take semi-automatic weapons, buy extra parts, turn them into automatic weapons, and sell them at a considerable profit. It also allowed them to build the stockpile at Mount Carmel for their final battle. They not only had the guns, but they also bought grenade shells and powder, so they they built illegal grenades. They had guns against the gun laws, and that meant that the ATF was correct once they learned about it, that they would plan some kind of operation to get the guns back, to, to get the guns safely away, and to arrest David Koresh. They started actually doing that to make money. Why were they engaging in target practice? David Koresh wanted to make sure that when the final battle occurred, his followers would be able to fight the way the book of Revelation said they must. It had to be an all-out battle. His people were going to die, but obviously they had to be ready to kill the, the agents of Babylon. 
So this is why practice was needed, so that when the attack came from Babylon, as he was sure it would, his followers could give a good account of themselves before they died. That way God would be pleased. You know, during the 51-day standoff, after the gun battle with ATF agents and before the FBI launched the raid that ended this, this was a huge national news story. And this, of course, this all happened about a year after the Ruby Ridge standoff in Idaho, uh, where, um, you know, there were, there were deaths at the hands of federal agents and would become a, a seminal event in the minds of anti-government activists. Did, did anti-government activists show up at Waco uh, to make, make a point about what was going on? During the siege, you had basically three categories of civilians crowding around trying to see what was happening. There were just the usual gawkers who were out for a show. Then there was a group of people who were very pro-government agencies, and four federal agents had been killed, and these were people who were screaming for the religious nuts to come out or die, one of the two. But maybe the the most vocal group, the most obvious group, were people who saw in Waco the same things they had suspected in earlier Ruby Ridge about six months before, that the United States government was systematically trying to murder or at least repress gun-owning, law-abiding citizens who had never done anything to hurt anybody else. Uh, There were a lot of militants selling anti-government T-shirts and bumper stickers. One of them, and we have a picture of this in the book, was a guy named Timothy McVeigh, who two years later would blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City in protest of, of what happened in Waco. It was here that Waco became ground zero for future militancy, and Waco would become to the conspiracy-minded, a great symbol of the evil of American government. You know, the assault, it's obviously a disaster if 23 children are killed. And, you know, one of the things that feeds conspiracies is when government agencies give explanations that then begin to fall apart and they lose credibility. Tell us what the government's initial explanation of what happened was and um, how that held up over time. If we ever want proof that trying to cover up small things when mistakes have been made is the worst thing you can possibly do. Just look at Mount Carmel and Waco. In the aftermath of the terrible fire, the FBI stated that they simply had done what had been agreed upon with the attorney general gradually inserting CS gas. It was all non-flammable and that Attorney General Reno had agreed to it. They lied in that early that morning, they had used some combustible military rounds to insert gas as well as the non-combustible rounds that they had promised the Attorney General. But these military rounds never actually broke into flames. The fire started hours after those rounds were fired. But when the FBI got caught lying about that, then, of course, it made it easy for conspiracists to say they're lying about everything. That was the first small step. Then you'd have to look at the whole negotiation process. Uh, One of the lead agents for the FBI actually said, well, it really wasn't a negotiation. 
which gave the impression he meant that, no, we weren't going to let the Branch Davidians talk about their religion when that had nothing to do with the situation. But what it was taken to mean was that we intended to kill them all along. These things caught public attention, and once that happened and stories kept coming out in the media, more and more it seemed, there must have been lying throughout. This had to be the intention of the government to go in there and kill those people. And it never was. There are three groups involved in this horrible situation, the ATF, the FBI, and the Branch Davidians. It's critical to understand that of these three groups, only the Branch Davidian agenda required people to die. The ATF and the FBI both went in, not just with the hope, but with the actual determination that no lives were going to be lost. ATF and FBI officials made terrible mistakes that led to loss of life, and that is horrible. But it was not the original intention. Only the Branch Davidians wanted this to end with death. Did reporting on these cults that you have reported on and their tragic consequences, did it affect you psychologically? When I work on these books, usually I'm working on them for three years, and I work every day, so it's a 24-7 sort of thing. And writing about Mount Carmel and Waco, I began having nightmares soon after I began talking to the surviving Branch Davidians, and they, they were talking about the, the terrible fire and what they had to do to get out of the building. And now, after three years of research and writing, the book's about to come out, and I'm still having the nightmares. I wake up in the middle of the night shouting and screaming, according to my wife. And it's always the same thing about being in a building and a fire's coming closer and closer to me. I don't know how long it will take for the nightmare to go away. But at least it was only a nightmare. The people who described it to me had to live through it. Do you think you're going to continue to, to write stories like this? Well, I don't always write stories like this. I've written 25 books, and quite a few of them don't involve cults or death. But it's simply a fact that in America, we seem to have a predilection for demagogues. And that happens in religion and it happens in politics. And more and more I become convinced that when you look not just at Manson or Jim Jones or David Koresh, we can see some of the same tactics they use for the people who are running for public office and sometimes quite successfully, you know, saying I'm the only one that can solve these problems. Listen to me and absolutely no one else. And if you don't do everything I say, you're a sinner. You're a traitor. Maybe if we study Manson and Jones and Koresh a little bit more, we'll choose a little better in terms of who we elect to lead us. At least I hope that will happen. Well, Jeff Gwynn, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Jeff Gwynn's new book is Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. 
Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Mm-hmm.